I'm delighted to welcome to the first Tech Trailblazers Judges on Fire podcast of 2021, Jessica Lee. And Jessica has a number of roles, and we came across one another when you were with Say in the Capital, but you've also been very heavily involved as head of content for Alpha as well. So welcome, Jessica. Great to see you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. No problem. No problem. So perhaps you'd like to give us initially, um, not everybody who's listening will have had the opportunity to meet you or know you. So perhaps you could give a little bit of an overview of, you know, your startup journey and your involvement in the startup community and the tech community. Yes, of course. So a little bit more on myself. I'm currently full-time with a company called Zagino, which is basically a B2B procurement marketplace in the life sciences, sort of like an Amazon for the life sciences, for biotech startups, pharma companies, labs, researchers, et cetera. I can go to more easily and more seamlessly procure all their lab equipment, materials, and supplies all in one place. And so doing growth marketing here, our growth marketing team is just three people, two when I joined, um, or two including myself when I joined. So um, even though the company is a little bit larger, our growth stage startup based in Boston and Berlin, um, so our team is relatively small. And so that's what I do full time. Um, and then part time, as you alluded to, I had content for Elsa, which is a community of women in tech. We now have a little over 40,000 members worldwide, which is super exciting. So I manage all of our featured posts published twice a week and then also our asynchronous twice a week, office hours, ask me anything as we call them with really incredible women on or off the platform. So those are my two main roles, but then I also do some other content things, including heading content with Harvard and Tech and Techstars Boston, and also writing for Pingolduo, which is this e-commerce company in China. Um, and then previously was in the investing world, as you alluded to, is working at Zoma Capital prior to the Gina, which is a seed stage fund, pretty, which is a sector agnostic fund focused on enterprise. Joined them as their first full-time hire, which was super exciting. So did everything from sourcing to diligence to content to community and portfolio operations and some investor relations as well. Um, and they're based in San Francisco and had content with Alpha there as well through time still. Um, and then these days to stay connected to the startup world also mentor with several different accelerators, including Techstars and Alchemist and Accelerprise and Plug and Play. So pretty much pre-seed and seed accelerators across all kinds of spaces and sectors. Then more recently, IndieBio as well, which is a biotech-specific accelerator given my new role at Zagino. And then doing some angel investing on the side and scouting for different groups, including Gresham Robotics and Predictive VC. And prior to all of that, and prior to Soma, I spent some time in startup world, working with Morning Brew and Locks, um, also some time in public markets, investing with an endowment, a family office in Northwestern Mutual, and then also some time in investment banking at Morgan Stanley, and then finally some time at other early stage venture funds, including General Catalyst, which is how full circle I came back to be connected with Subgino when General Catalyst led our series B back in 2019. And so, yeah, that's a little bit about me. Wow. A busy lady. So thank you very much for making the time to chat. That was brilliant. Well, you joined us as a judge um, quite late in the day, unfortunately, in 2020. So you've not perhaps had the exposure to the startups that we'd like you to to have. And unfortunately, due to a prior commitment, you're not able to join us for um, 
the showcase that we've got with some of our winners that's happening on the 25th. But um, aside from that, it'd be great to obviously have a vast amount of experience, both on both sides of the fence in the startup world, both from an investment perspective, of which you're obviously still involved, and you know within the startup side of things. So when you're judging, what kind of startups are going to attract your attention? What's going to sort of light your your fire around the kind of people who participate in awards? Yeah, that's a great question. I think for me, especially in the early stage, which I imagine is most relevant for most listeners um, in the pre-seed, sometimes even series A stage, I think what's really important to me is first and foremost, the team, um, because the product and subsequently the market and everything around the more fact-based um, aspects of the company can change and shift as the company goes through the process of finding product market athletic tech companies pivot to fintech, which seems totally different. I've seen as sort of a more famous example, Embark Trucks, which is one of our former portfolio companies and Soma Capital that's now a very big company. They had a massive growth round, I think in late 2018, if not late 2019, led by Tiger Global, which is obviously a very well-known, very big and very global um, growth fund. Um, and when they first started back in the seed stage, when they were in Y Combinator, they started off as an autonomous golf cart company, which if you overanalyze that market and sound silly or small or just not a big pain point. And if you had been stuck on that, you would have missed out on a really great investment opportunity as an investor or as the judge or supporter of the startup community. Um, and now obviously they haven't yet gone public. They're still a private company, but doing super well by all metrics. Um, and they're doing autonomous trucking, which is of course, um, you know, sounds like a more reasonable market and a big market, big growing market. Um, that they're really dominating. And so I think in this case, really focusing on the founder and really understanding him or her and understanding how they think and how they see the world. Obviously, pedigree and prior experience is a factor, but I don't think it should be an overwhelming factor. I think it's much more about those more qualitative and harder to judge or less black and white aspects of a founder, their perseverance, their resilience, if they've had experiences in the past prior to founding this company where they've had to build and rebuild over and over again. One of my favorite founders who I met through my work at General Catalyst, um, it was really interesting because he was actually a researcher in his past life prior to founding this fintech company. And one thing that had happened to him is that he was doing this multi-year long bio project um, and he was working with Petri dishes. I'm not too sure of the details, but one of his eyelashes dropped into the Petri dish um, in sort of like the last minute or final mile, final stretch of his project. And I don't think everyone's his whole project. That would have been a little bit drastic and hopefully he had some backups there, mm. but it did, you know, throw him for a loop and throw his project out of sync. And just like small things like that where you have to redo, you know, a two, three, one year long experiment that you poured a ton of time and a ton of heart and energy into. But um, you know, not giving up and, you know, actually just um, sucking it up and persevering and being resilient. Um, it doesn't have to be anything super drastic. Obviously, it could be, but it could be something more professional, more academic like that, just sort of proving your resilience. So looking for attributes like that in founders and also looking for a well-rounded team, especially at founders who've worked together before, because I think a lot of times there is this big difference between people who met each other and can get along over drinks or over dinner or like, you know, once a week or once a month or whatever, like all of our 
you know, typical general friends, but it's a very different experience to actually work together and be collectively accountable for a deliverable together. And I think that's obviously something founders do literally 24 seven or co-founders do 24 seven together. And I think a lot of times people have this misconception where they get along well with someone over, you know, again, drinks, coffee, dinner, et cetera, but it's a whole different experience to work with them. So I'd love to see when founders, obviously not always or not mandatory, but it's always really helpful to see that they have worked together on something in the past. Um, I think finally, it's also really helpful to see founders who are very process oriented and not outcome oriented. Obviously, all of the company will have an amazing outcome at the end, and that's really great, but it probably won't come, if at all, for you know seven to 10 years in those early stages. And so founders need to be very process oriented and love the ride and do ridiculously challenging things just for fun. I met another founder back when I was at Harvard who's building this sort of like 3D printing farm, which is super cool. And they're still early stage, so hard to say what will happen. Um, but one thing he said that prepared him really well for his founder journey beyond, you know, classes, jobs, experiences is just his process of tinkering and working on different projects because that was this experience of doing something insanely difficult, not for a grade, not for an outcome, not for a pat on the back, even not for money, but really just to enjoy the process and enjoy the process of actually creating something from nothing. And that's obviously what founders do for limited short-term or intermediate medium-term rewards. And so it's really important to look for people who have that quality and characteristic. Mm, Indeed. Indeed. And certainly from what you say, I think is true about um, the team and, you know, multiple co-founders. I certainly found that a lot of our winners have, you know, people who worked together in the past, who set up companies together. And I think that's one of the very exciting things about enterprise tech is that it's it's much, much easier because it, it just ten- tends to be, you tend to see with enterprise tech that you are repeat offenders, if that's the right, right, right word. Um, that people can replicate it because they understand it. They've got the access to the contacts from a financial perspective and from a commercial perspective, and they kind of have the blueprint for success of what they need to put in place and the processes as well as the people. So I think obviously you've talked a little bit about Alpha uh, as a, a female focus, and obviously that's one of the things that particularly sort of drew us together. Obviously, Tetrolways is founded by a female. We have our female tech trailblazers award, which focuses on ladies as as well as the the male. Um, what are you seeing within you know the feedback within Alpha around what's happening? You know, it's been a very challenging, as everybody likes to to sort of point out, time. Um, and how how are female founders and fe- female senior execs in startups? You know what? What's the sort of the 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 mood, the feeling out there at the moment? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, as you alluded to, it's been a very challenging time, obviously for everyone with COVID and all that's going on in the world right now in the U.S. abroad as well. Um, and obviously, as a lot of the data has recently shown, uh, there was a report from Q4 2020, and then obviously earlier this year in the U.S. at least with our jobs report. Um, in the record in Q4, which was more on funding, it showed that there was a significant decrease in funding to female founders and female-led companies, even relative to um, investment in male firms. Then earlier this year, earlier this month, um, with the latest job support in the U.S., um, it showed that 
women lost many more jobs um, in the prior quarter than men, uh, many, many more, which is obviously very disappointing. And there's all this research and hypothecating that's showing that a lot of times women leave the workforce um, not because they can't find a job, perhaps. I mean, some of it is due to that, but also they voluntarily leave the workforce. They're not even counted in that unemployment rate or job loss rate because they are voluntarily withdrawing, but because they need to take care of housework and children and education as schools remain closed or parents just don't feel comfortable, understandably, putting their children back into schools given the COVID situation is still not great, to say the least, in the U.S. or other countries as well. And so lots of concerning data on that front, in addition to all of the macro events that are affecting everybody. Um, and so in terms of Alpha and just sort of more anecdotally what I've seen elsewhere, I think there's definitely been a lot more vulnerability, which I think is really great because I think the worst thing or one of the worst things you can do is sort of keep it all inside of you and feel like you're the only one feeling this way or that you're unusual or something is wrong with you or kind of just bottling it all up, especially when it comes to something that is more emotional and less kind of black and white or less fact-based. Um, and it's very understandable and very normal to feel negative emotions with all this going on, especially um, in the women's community more broadly. And so it's been really great to see more people on Alpha. We have this feature where once you're logged in, you could post anonymously. So it's a cool kind of blend where you have to be logged in. So not just any random, you know, troll robot, whatever on the internet can post as you sometimes see on Reddit or other kind of um, not great anonymous forums. Um, so it's nice because you drop to log in and be an actual member of the community and we let people in. Um, not on like a titles or seniority basis, but more on an intention space of making sure regardless of your age or background, but that you're really um, positively intentioned. And so I think that's really nice to have a diversity of people in every sense of the word. Um, we all have really positive, really good, very collaborative and supportive intentions. And so um, once you're logged in, you can post anonymously. And so it's nice because people feel like they can be more vulnerable and be more open, especially when um, it is a more sensitive topic. Um, I recently saw a post where someone said that they've been crying a lot um, all the time, and it was personal anonymous, understandably, but that's sort of something that you don't always talk about, you know, in the typical work meeting or on the typical LinkedIn or Twitter post, but I imagine it's something that a lot of us are going to be with kind of similar emotions, even if not, you know, literally crying. And similarly, somebody had posted about um, this long-term relationship that they were kind of rethinking due to some events that happened during COVID between this person and her partner. And so different things like that, where people are being more vulnerable and being more open and setting an example for others that this is okay and normalizing this behavior and this sense of feeling sad or lonely or kind of other negative emotions, but then also kind of having different community members, many of them not anonymous and you can message mm. them directly if you want to have further conversations um, and many of them anonymous as well if they want to sort of share their own experiences that have been similar but basically regardless um different community members responding with their advice and their empathy um and just sort of a very supportive community there's never been a negative comment where someone's you know calling somebody out for feeling vulnerable or, you know, other kind of understandable behaviors. Everybody's just super understanding and super supportive. And so I think the downside, obviously, is everything awful that's going on, both for everybody and also for women in particular. But I think the silver lining, if you will, is that people are more open to being vulnerable. And then in turn, people are 
more open to feeling what they're feeling as well as supporting others and being able to support others. I think a lot of times if you don't share how you're feeling, it's harder for others to obviously know and to be able to provide that support. And so I think the sort of positive feedback cycle, it's really good to have gotten started in a more meaningful way during these challenging times. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like it that type of anonymous um, being open. And how did you know that that was my post? <laughs> uh, no, I wouldn't say I've been crying any more than usual, but uh, yeah, I think we've all had our moments. You know, COVID has certainly tested us all. We're spending a lot more time on our own or on virtual conferences. Uh, we're not getting a lot of the support. Uh, and I think that's particularly true for everybody, you know, and I think it's great that there is a, a forum for, for women to have that, but I, it does sound like there, there should, if there isn't already, something for everybody, really, to have that ability to be able to say, hey, you know, th- this is uh, this is not okay for me at the moment and, you know, I'd like some support. So, yeah, so that's great. And I'm glad that people are finding that there in a, in a, a huge community of 40,000 ladies. So that's brilliant. So, you know, from your perspective of your experience and, you know, two elements really. One is what would you say is the biggest lesson that you've learned as someone involved in a startup? And then perhaps the biggest lesson that you've learned or seen when you've looked at it from an investment perspective. So to, to kick off with, what would you say is your, your biggest lesson that perhaps you'd like to share? Apart from obviously make sure you've got some tissues handy. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so in terms of to the first part of your question of being a part of a startup, um, I think so many things and obviously my own learnings and own perspective is from somebody who came from the venture world. So I imagine the learnings would be a little bit, if not a lot different for somebody who's been involved in big tech or startup land or maybe some different type of investing public market private equity. But for me, from that perspective, with that context, given um, a couple of different things, actually. So one thing is sort of, I think when I was in VC, all of my um, KPIs that I was being judged on and being tracked on were very output oriented. They were obviously, you know, involved a lot of hard work. They were very important work. I loved doing it, but it was very much things that were almost a hundred percent in my control. It was things like how many founders am I reaching out to? How many founders am I talking to? Which again is important and hard work, but I just, you know, email, and I just show up um, to those calls. It's not inconceivable how I, you know, go about doing that. And it is very much this linear relationship between time and output. Um, you know, you send one email every, I don't know, five minutes or 10 minutes, and that's sort of, you know, how much time you just put in to send n number of emails. But I think in the operator world, um, what's really interesting is that, you know, obviously it's so important to be responsive, just block messages and email. But what really matters is the outcomes and not so much the output. I could send a million emails um, and if none of them convert to leads, um, nobody really cares. Um, but you know, if I sent you know, four emails and not literally emails, but just for the sake of analogy um, and you know, two of them respond positively and become marketing qualified leads or um, just otherwise are able to move down our sales funnel, that's much more valuable. And so that's sort of decoupling between time and output and this aspect of working not just hard, but also working smart and also being creative when we encounter challenges or pushback or, um, you know, other obstacles. And so basically this um, kind of 80-20 rule in some ways where you spend a lot of time sharpening the knife um, to be able to have these compounding effects that you can reap later on and not thinking that, oh, this didn't immediately produce output, so it's no good, but kind of being more 
quality over quantity um, in different approaches and being more strategic and more thoughtful. And so that's one thing. The second thing um, is that I think with venture, my um, relationship building style is very much long-term and broad, obviously, because investors, as many listeners may know, spend most of their days taking external calls with founders, new ones, or ones in the portfolio, other investors, um, you know, et cetera, partners, um, which is great. And it's great to meet so many people in the ecosystem and build so many long-term relationships. But you're not talking to the same people every single day when you are talking to them, you know, once every few months, if not once total or once a year, um, you're very much just in this position of sharing information. You know, what deal flow are you seeing? What macro trends are you excited about? Which is a super cool conversation, of course, but it's very different from talking to the same, you know, three to five people every single day and being collectively accountable for a deliverable together. Um, And so that's been very much my, obviously, work day in the operator world. Um, Very few, if any, um, external calls day to day and very much, you know, catch up calls, touch bases meetings with the same, you know, three to five people I work most closely with. So very interpersonal, but in a very different way has been really interesting. Um, It involves a lot more empathy as well, because I think when you're just talking to someone and sharing information, it's, you know, still requires some empathy to know what they're curious about, uh, but it's a little bit more direct. Whereas when you're working cross-functionally, you need to, um, you know, more implicitly and look at the nonverbal cues of what people care about what their instincts are, what their work styles are, what their priorities are, what their OKRs or KPIs are for their department or for themselves individually. And so that kind of process of building deeper empathy and working with people more closely over time has been really interesting to learn too, and certainly a skill that that's really invaluable. And so I'm really glad I've been able to um, build upon it in the operator world. Um, and so that's um, kind of on the being a part of the startup um, situation. On the other side of your question, other part um, in terms of having invested in um, previously and a little bit still now as a scout and angel, um, as an investor, when I've learned about startups or just learned in general um, in that world, um, I think a couple of different things as well. So one, I think what's been really interesting is going to that point of that long-term relationship building. Obviously, this is a little bit less relevant if these are folks you're seeing every single day and working cross-functionally with, but more of those people who are important names of your network and meaningful relationships are people you don't need to or get to interact with on a daily basis or even weekly or monthly basis. And I think what's really helpful is basically having a give first attitude there. I think a lot of times young people, early career people, even founders in many cases, they might feel like they're not in a position to give um, because, you know, for the young people, because they're young, they don't have as much experience. Or if you're a student, even, um, you feel like you obviously are super young, so you really don't have any experience. And that's sort of how I felt really early on in my career when I was a student as well. And it was always very much like reaching out to people to ask them for a favor in the form of their time or their advice or their introductions. Um, And obviously, you know, it's great to be able to receive that from people. Um, And of course, some people are able to give more than others. And that is somewhat tied to your age or your career status. But I think always having a gift first mentality is something that I've learned a lot through the investing world because relationship building is just so core to the deal flow you get, to the way in which you're able to win allocation into deals, um, to the way in which you're able to support founders after you invest as well. And so I think basically even when you're cold outreaching to people, not just saying like, could I please have you know 30 minutes, 20 minutes of your time? I have these questions. 
Um, but talking about ways that you can help them as well. And even if you're a university student, for example, and you can't think of um, you know major, major ways to help, let's say you're reaching out to the CEO of a company or an investor, um, but you actually can, you can offer access to the university networks. I know many startups are dying to hire um, you know, seniors at universities, especially engineers um, in the early stages, um, or maybe there's different startups on campus that you're able to refer to investors, for example, what you're reaching out to, who you're reaching out to as an investor, and you're able to offer access to that university startup. So different things like that, or even if none of the above, but you can offer product feedback or organize a focus group if their product is something that you use or you know a lot of people who use or would use or would benefit from. And so basically being creative around ways in which to give. So I think that's really the first thing that I really learned. And I think the second thing um, is really, I think a lot of times people in the venture world or people, you know, early on in the venture world, they sort of have this misconception that you need to focus a ton on, you know, tangible things like revenue or pedigree or prior experience and these sort of things that you can quote unquote touch and feel. And it's a sort of concrete fact, um, if you will, they went to X school, they worked at X company. And obviously those things are um, not to be dismissed. And there's certainly data points that you should incorporate and be aware of. But I think what's actually much more important is going back to some of what I said earlier is very much this more intangible or kind of harder to figure out. It's not something you can just look up on LinkedIn and know yes or no, did they go to this school right away? But it's something that you have to work for through getting to know these founders as people and how they see the world and how they problem solve. And a lot of it comes with observation over time. And so I think the most important factor for a founder is perseverance, which is something you can't always quickly fact checked on the internet in a moment's time, but something that you have to work hard to understand is really interesting. But I think it also makes for much more interesting investment discussions and much more informed investment decision-making and also stronger relationships that you get to build with founders regardless of if you invest in them or not. Okay, wonderful. Well, there's a lot of lot of advice there, a lot of advice. Um, obviously, 2021, we'll be kicking off with entries on June 25th, so that's one for the diaries, um, and then obviously putting it out to yourselves. Um, as I said, it is a shame you can't join us for the, the meetup next week on the 25th because we actually have our Tech Trailblazers female winner and Stephanie Foam from New Vector joining us for that and a couple of the other judges as well as some of the other winners. Um, but um, it's certainly something that we'd like to do in the future. I'm trying to think, if there's a, is there anything else that you'd like to share with listeners? Any other sort of pointers or insights that you feel would be you know, this would be a good vehicle to share on. Yeah, I think one kind of final thing I'll add um, that I think I've learned throughout the year, sometimes perhaps the hard way, but one thing that's really stuck with me is I think a lot of times people have a misconception around what they should or what they need to do. Um, I think so I went to Harvard and obviously really glad and, you know, super grateful for that opportunity. Um, but looking back, I think I was overly focused on my career um, in the first, you know, let's say half or three years of my experience there. And I think part of it obviously was just sort of something intrinsic um, in my own instincts or my own motivation, but I think there's also inevitably anywhere, not just Harvard, a lot of herd mentality on campus. And I think I kept thinking that I needed to go into these very traditional career paths that I saw many of my classmates a year, a couple of years ahead of me, or just saw 
um, you know, my parents talking about a lot or just going to be people talking about the grapevine, investment banking, consulting. Um, and obviously, there's certainly merits and benefits of going into those industries that can't be discounted or discredited. But I think a lot of times you need to think less about what society or what your parents or what your peers or what your professors or mentors expect you to do and listen more to what you personally want to do. Um, and so I think that's sort of something that I would tell my younger self um, as a piece of advice. And my younger brother is actually starting um, at Harvard later this year. And so that's something that I'll be telling him a bunch as well. I think sometimes you do have to make those mistakes or go down wrong paths to be able to learn it yourself. And that's probably the best way to internalize lessons. But of course, um, you know, internalizing it sooner rather than later is always helpful to be able to end up going into the industries and the domains in which you kind of feel like you have the biggest impact and biggest fulfillment. And I think people ultimately do their best work and are their best selves when they are happy. Um, and so I think it's really important to think about your own optimization function and not adopt the one from the market, if you will, um, to draw on an economic analogy. Um, but instead of kind of looking at what your peers have or what they're optimizing for or what everybody else in the world and your age group is optimizing for, obviously that could be a small input um, if you're really lost. But I think it's really important to kind of take the time to know yourself and how you work best and where you work best and what you're curious about and be really curiosity driven. Really? Interesting. Great advice, particularly for those who are taking the first steps, perhaps, in that yeah. particular journey. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Jessica. Please give a Yeah. So, who's one of our judges? So, it's been great to have you on the Judges on Fire podcast. And hopefully, we'll be uh, bumping into one another again very soon. Oh, look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you.